Welcome to Nothing to Hide, the Moore & Giles podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Calfee. Moore & Giles is one of America's oldest leather companies. We were founded during the heart of the Great Depression here in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1933. And almost 100 years later, our leadership is still in pursuit of one thing, the world's finest leather. Perhaps we've even touched your life. Maybe it was in a hotel lobby or your home, or perhaps this morning when you went to get a cup of coffee, you found your favorite leather chair in the corner, you settled in. Well, that leather is probably Moore & Giles too. Our goal was simply just to share some stories within this podcast, to take you on a journey, to let you experience what we experience. We'll teach you how leather's made and give you insight to some of the subtle nuances of the material. Did you know it's one of man's oldest materials? We're also going to take you to meet some of our favorite people in the world, designers and creative influencers, and people that are connected to Moore & Giles through one thing, leather. We hope you join us on the Moore & Giles podcast, Nothing to Hide. Hey guys, it's Daryl Calfee, and I'm here on the Moore and Giles Nothing to Hide podcast. Today, I get the opportunity to interview our director of design, Thomas Brennan, and we're going to be talking about leather and how that affects design and his choices. I hope you enjoy the show. Say hey, T. Hey, everybody. How are you? We are in the Moore and Giles leather room slash on-site hide store slash impromptu recording studio man it's a great recording studio there's leather hides hanging all over the walls and this is a room that we open about once a month to let people come in and in our community and the surrounding communities buy hides that maybe we're not running anymore kind of discontinued and we also sell scrap out of here we sell remnants of hides that we sample or that we no longer run or we don't actually need so they're put to good use pretty wild mix in here it's pretty avant-garde if you will black patent leather bronze transfers fake alligator that looks some some sort of impressionistic thing over there I also have a blue hair on hide blue hair on like hide. Baltic blue hair on hide stripes cool it is cool it's great for audio but it's pretty cool visually to get you in the mood to talk about leather so today on the podcast thomas and i are gonna take a look at not only his work in design and how leather has affected that but we're also going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be in our factories and how our products are made so t welcome to the show thank you thanks for having me so give everybody that's listening a little bit of background on you not only in your own personal life and kind of like your story of how you got to more giles sure. but like what your daily job looks like here at the office? Sure. So I grew up in Lynchburg. I'm one of many locals uh, who work here. I uh, went away for college. I went up to Massachusetts, a little liberal arts college called Williams College. Studied architecture. From architecture school, I wound up going and working in construction. I built buildings for a little while to try to sort of understand how that process worked, which mm. is something that mm. sort of was helpful later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to Boston and worked for an architecture firm there for a little while, doing some project managing and coordinating between sort of studio and job site. And I got honestly a little bit disheartened uh, or I kind of fell out of love with it a little mm. bit. The, the process takes a really long time. You know, buildings are complicated mm. and large and it takes a long time to build them. So after being there for about 18 months, almost two years and really not seeing a lot finish, Mm. You know, in that period of time, I became pretty disenchanted with the work and decided to take a step way back and wanted to go back to working with my hands like I had been doing when in the construction world and took a detour out of the world of design into the world of food. And I started butchering and then baking and <laughs> candlestick making, no candlestick making, but two out of three, not bad. And stayed in the food world for about four years and went from Boston to Portland, Maine and from Portland, Maine down to Brooklyn. And then by the time I was wrapping up my time in Brooklyn, 
I knew I wanted to get out of the world of food. It's a mm. pretty taxing environment. Yeah. And had an inkling to come back to the world of design. Yeah. So you said, hey, I'm going to step out of the world of food in New York, and I want to get back into design. Right. So how do you do that? And especially for young people that are listening to this, right? Like who may change careers multiple right. times in the beginning. Right. Like how do you make that shift or make that decision? This is what was interesting was that having had the experience at the architecture firm and knowing consciously that what I didn't like about that environment was not the design process itself mm. in terms of the actual sort of creative process, but was the timeline. It was not seeing work finish quickly enough for wow. me. You know, just my patience, just personally, mm -hmm. didn't jive very well with buildings. So let me get this straight. You were working in food in New York. You had been in an architecture firm in Boston. You had worked construction in North Carolina. Yeah. And all of those experiences combined kind of led you to more Giles today. Like, how did you make that shift to work with leather and design bags? The people. Really? I was introduced to Sackett Wood, the president of the company, at a wedding of one of my oldest hmm. friends from Lynchburg. And again, I knew in my mind, or I had an inkling in my mind that I wanted to get back into design, but honestly, I wasn't sure what that was specifically mm. going to look like. I knew what I didn't like about architecture. And I also knew what I did like about food, which was that sort of direct connection to the customer and composing these sort of smaller worlds on a plate as mm. opposed to the bigger worlds of a building. And so a small conversation with Sackett turned into a longer conversation. Yeah. Uh, he invited me in and gave me a tour. After taking a tour and meeting a few people here, again, with very little specific idea mm. about this is what I want to do. Mm. The experience was resonant enough hmm. and the people and the environment were so inviting wow. that when the offer was made very graciously on Sackett's part to say, well, why don't you come and intern with our current bag designer yeah. and just see what it's like. Yeah. That was a real gift. Mm. You know, that was that was a real gift because you really don't know what you want to do until mm. you start trying things, you know? Mm. So to have the opportunity, and that's how I had sort of operated before. I went and worked construction and tried that. I went to the architecture firm, tried that. Butchering, tried that. Baking, tried that. Mm. Working on a line in a restaurant, tried that. Living in New York, tried that. Mm. And really sort of just got the experience. Even if it wasn't operating at a high level, I wasn't in charge of anything. Mm. And I also typically went into a lot of these positions pretty underqualified, <laughs> to be honest with you, which I say not as sort of a knock against myself, but as an encouragement to, mm. to anybody who is, whether it's thinking of changing careers or just sort of curious about getting into another field. The nice thing about not knowing anything when you start a new job mm. is that everything is interesting. <laughs> everything is interesting and everything is valuable. Mm. So when I started here, I was doing everything from packing boxes to hand burnishing alligator hides mm. that we would get in to going to trade shows to mm -hmm. going to stores and visiting stores to do trunk shows to watching over heather's shoulder the sort of designer at the time yeah. watching over her shoulder to just see what her process was like yeah to tagging along with her to the factory and yeah. seeing what that experience was like and it was overwhelming yeah. that's a lot to take in and yeah. it's a lot of sort of different directions to be pulled in but it was how i was able to figure out a how to do the job mm -hmm. and definitely how to do the job, but then also understanding the process from start to finish. Yeah. In the position that I'm in now, 
where I touch everything from what are the gift boxes look like mm-hmm. that would impact the wallets to what do we want the trade show booth to look yeah. like to obviously what do we want a bag to look like to what do we want a hotel suite with the Moran Giles name on it to look like. Yeah. That's all been informed not by the fact that I'm really good at my job or have some sort of special training, mm. but by the fact that I've been exposed to things and had a lot of people around me in each of those situations who has known more than I have and has been willing to share it with mm. me. And that is so key. And it's so unique to more jobs. Yeah. I've worked in so many different places, yeah. job sites in Durham, yeah. kitchens in Boston, architecture firm in Boston, yeah. a butcher shop you know, here in Lynchburg. And to have not just one or two people mm. who are really have your best interests at heart and are willing to sort of take the time to show you how to do things right, but like a sea of them at this point. I was like the 63rd higher or something like that. Wow. We're now at 110. 115. Yeah. And so that experience has only compounded wow. as the company has grown, in my experience. You know, because every day I'm still running into new design problems as we shift from just doing men's bags into men's and women's bags Mm. and from just bags to home goods and from home goods to furniture and from furniture to experiences like the Virginian suite where it's a really sort of 360 degree live in more in Giles experience. Each of those things is uh, the product, the accumulation of knowledge that's here that I just get to channel. Man, that's so cool. It's, it's, It's fantastic. Well, I think a couple questions pop up for me in that moment. So the first question everybody has about working with leather is, oh, well, you know, do you guys butcher the cows right and so one of the things that we always keep coming back to is is like we're kind of cleaning up the right. food chain right? right the fact that we actually are able to take those hides that come from processing beef yeah. and turn them into something that's useful and beautiful is number one amazing sure. but number two like it gives us an opportunity to really be part of the sustainability conversation so i think when i look at your background as a butcher yeah like you yeah. were without even knowing playing a role in that how does that affect your mindset today like as you look at a high and yep. you're getting ready to turn a hide into a bag or sure. turn a hide into a chair. Sure. Where's your head at on that now? More often than I ever mention, I think about the very first time I butchered a cow, where I walked into this restaurant in Boston. I was going there after work. I'd work at the architecture firm until six, and I'd hop on the train, and on my way back out of town to Jamaica Plain where I was living, I'd get off in back bay and walk to this really fancy restaurant, small sort of bistro place that had an in-house butcher. And the very first day I walked in, you know, 6.30, I'm kind of in my architectural like duds, you know, so I don't really look like I belong in the kitchen. I didn't belong in the kitchen. (laughs) The guy pulled out a quarter of a cow, which is, you know, the whole sort of half of the back half. And it was so real. You know, like we think about beef and we think about a hamburger, you know, a discreet, already finished product, you know, the end result of something that's completely detached from what this animal was. I look at a hide with the same kind of awe. Yeah. Because to then watch this guy take this enormous, somewhat unwieldy, I mean, the piece probably weighed 100 20, 150 pounds, yeah. you know, bone in and everything, mm-hmm. to take it and then methodically work his way through it, starting mm-hmm. with the big pieces and mm-hmm. the sort of prime cuts. Mm-hmm. And then from there, looking at what's left in the more sort of scrap category 
And then what are sort of the hidden gems inside mm. of an animal? You know, these sort of butcher's cuts there's, yeah. uh, that are sort of prized but less well-known than a ribeye or, a, or yeah. a tenderloin. And then eventually getting down to the bones. Yeah. And then taking those and doing things with that. And working with the leather is the exact same. Yeah. You know, where you start with this sometimes physically unwieldy piece, whether mm. it's a piece of veg tan leather that's a couple millimeters thick mm-hmm. and way is a lot you know mm-hmm. a big roll of this stuff and you're trying to unroll it you need a big enough table and then you know you need a sharp enough knife and you need a, you know sounds all very similar all very right similar, you yeah know? it could be overwhelming yeah until you break it down just like with mm. the animal itself like you're talking about into these discrete chunks where you know which pieces have different values mm-hmm. to them yeah you know so when i know that we're going to be doing a chair mm-hmm. i'm not just thinking of okay this big beautiful piece in the center of this hide that has these beautiful neck wrinkles and this incredible sort of depth of color and variation mm. of color in it that's so distinctive to this hide that we're using i'm also thinking about what's going to be left over after you cut out this enormous panel mm-hmm. leather in an effort just like in the food world to maximize what is an extremely valuable product. That to waste would be not only creatively dull of me, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, oh, there's nothing I can do with these small pieces, yeah. but it's also just wasteful. It's just sort of ethically wasteful. Yeah. You know? And then on the other side of that, to be able to do something with that scrap mm-hmm. that's just as beautiful, yeah. just on a smaller scale, or the same piece, you can't carry around a chair, but you can carry around a keychain, and it's the same hide. And yeah. they're both made with the same amount of care, and they're both made to the same quality standards. Yeah. I love that. Oh, that's good. I love it. Well, I think from kind of a raw primal perspective, we don't talk about that element of it too much. But, you know, the truth is, is that it's also why we're so connected to it. Right. When you see leather, especially like I'm just looking around this room, like there's an organic material that something in you almost bone deep responds to. I think it's why they roll a fake leather print onto vinyl so that there's whatever this thing is in you resonating will respond to it visually. I think we innately understand that it's valuable. And obviously some of that's cultural, but I also think that it is an aspect of respect, Mm. you know, for the material. And that's why your vinyl example is a great, great example of this, where you're going to print something that's not just recognizable, because you could print a pattern on it. Mm-hmm. You could print a chevrons or houndstooth or mm-hmm. something that doesn't have that same rarity. You want to know, yeah, you want that connection. That, you know, whether it's this patent leather over here that has this wild, plasticky, almost unnatural looking finish, mm-hmm. but even knowing that that's leather mm-hmm. makes that unnaturalness mm-hmm. that much cooler. Hmm. You know, where it's like, wow, you really know that somebody has done something really interesting to take mm. something that is recognizable and push it and push it and push yeah. it into a more sort of artistic uh, realm. It's amazing. Spinning off of that, I would say that our leathers are pretty identifiable. Even in a room full of leather, I right. think you can pick out, once you learn, what are the Moore and Giles leathers? There's right. a value and a beauty to them that I think really is kind of unparalleled with a lot of other stuff that we've seen out there. And when you're thinking of designing a new bag or designing a new piece of furniture, talk with me about leather selection and how that comes to play and like where your head's at when you're designing. It's changed. 
I've been here for almost eight years and I've been in this position sort of leading design mm-hmm. in one form or another for probably five or six of those. Mm-hmm. And we've really gotten to the point now where we have a stable of products and styles that are just awesome. Mm. You know, I mean, just beautiful mm. and consistent from sort of top to bottom. No duds. And I'll be the first to admit that that took a lot of work and it took a lot of trial and error. Mm. And it hasn't always been like that. You know, we're still a relatively young group Mm -hmm. on the bags and accessories side without the same history that the overall company has. So six years ago, let's say five years ago, we were still only seven years old at that point as, as a division. So you talk about finding your footing and trying things and having some stuff sell and some stuff not sell. The design process then was much safer in terms of leather selection, in terms yeah. of letting a little Here's leather. the group that you can use, Thomas. Exactly. Don't hurt yourself, Correct. right? Exactly. But also, like, we obviously have always had access to a really deep library of yeah. leather, but we didn't have the reputation mm-hmm. or even sort of, I don't even know. Well, you know, I think what it is, too, is there's a what it is. there's a little bit of fear there. Well, that's it's like, hey, we know what the true. four or five leathers that have sold really that's well for us are. True. Let's just stick with those. Even the same with design. That's really the big thing is I think that the design itself, we were really like, well, how many briefcases can we do? Yeah. And at a certain point, your briefcases stop being good if you've made 10 of them. Because like maybe four of them are awesome. Yeah. But then it becomes very hard to reinvent a rectangle with handle pockets. <laughs> it really does. I mean, because we're not trying to be crazy in the design side of it. The design needs to be subtle. Yeah. The design needs to be something that you will carry every day mm. for 25 years and not feel like it's dated, mm. not feel like it's not useful, yeah. not feel like it doesn't fit with who you are and what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. And so that necessarily puts some some serious boundaries on what we're going to do from mm. the design side. Yeah. But to become comfortable with that and to know that, you know what, maybe we don't need another briefcase. Maybe this set that we've got right now are the best. Mm-hmm. This is the culmination of what we've been doing so far. These are the most functional. Mm-hmm. These are the best looking. These are going to age the best. And honestly, these are the ones that people have responded to the best, yeah. which is also really important. Yeah. You know, we're keenly aware. I can't just design something and then if it doesn't sell, kind of shrug my shoulders and say people don't get it. <laughs> you know, like I want yeah. people to use it and yeah. i want people to respond positively to what we're doing as a designer do you feel that pressure yeah i mean it's the difference between art and design in mm. my book you know i mean there is some creative license that i want to take to be able to push things forward and say when i think about designing a bag for sacket or for trey you know these guys who are really consummate professional guys our guy our sort of traveling on the road in the mm-hmm. office going into high powered meetings but also running through airports mm-hmm. type of guy and he needs something that will work across that whole spectrum i want to be sure to give them something that they love but also something that has something that they don't expect in it. yeah yeah no. so we're not just pitching fastballs mm. you know? it's a real dance yeah but you always do have to keep a foot in it can't be too weird 
I've made that mistake before. I've made that mistake before and it's helped develop mm. me creatively, but it's also a really good reminder that there is a lot of fun to be had mm. design-wise in having parameters on your work. Mm. You know, I mean, it suddenly forces you to just think that much more deeply. If I could just say, well, we're just going to make a triangular briefcase today, you know, and this is going to be wild and interesting looking, fine, but nobody's going to buy that. You know, how do you both sort of capture that same excitement about we're going to do something a little bit different yeah. here uh -huh. versus what else I'm seeing on the market and have it be approachable? That's I just, a real one-two punch that's hard to do. I just imagined a whole urban setting of people walking around with circles, triangles, and squares. As people do it, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean not be, you know, but like you look around at some of these high fashion guys who don't have to sort of compete on yeah. the same playing field yeah. where people will buy anything that you put their name on. Yeah. And man, I just shake my head sometimes. And I love high fashion, but geez Louise. I mean, I'll look at these people wandering around with these bags and I'm just like, how is that helpful? Could you imagine life? trying to get your MacBook in a triangular briefcase? <laughs> or, a circle? or a circle? Or a circle. And people do it. So you do feel the pressure of design converting to sales. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the fun part. Mm. That's the fun part, man. Mm. It's like finding things that people want, mm. especially when they don't know that they want them. That's the real fun. And, you know, the way that we've been expanding the line has just brought in more and more and more opportunities yeah. to start populating mm. somebody's world. And again, with the exception of the chairs or really with the exception of something like the sofa, which is physically imposing. Yeah. Most of the things that we're doing are just these little bite-sized pieces that you can just sort of sprinkle throughout your life and are not going to be obvious necessarily to an outsider. They're yeah. not necessarily the brightest colors or the wackiest shapes or the biggest size, but it's things like the bookends, yeah. you know, which I just love. Yeah. Where it's a cool shape. It's really functional. Mm -hmm. You put it on your shelf and it both looks good and works well. Mm. And it's wrapped in this leather that's just going to look better and better. That's really so pretty. That's really the best, you know, and that's what's so distinct about working with this material versus, say, working with something quote unquote modern mm -hmm. plastic or something that's more sterile. That's good. Is that you, you've got something that's going to change and age and grow as mm. you do. So, like that. Describe a Moore and Giles bag to me. Like if I met you for the first time and I couldn't see it or hold it or touch it, how would you describe a Moore and Giles bag? Mm, how would I describe a Moore and Giles bag? A Moore and Giles bag is a little bit like a transformer, like Optimus Prime. But like Optimus Prime given to you in car form, and you're like, oh, it's a car. I know that. It's a truck. I love this. All right, I yeah. love this thing. This is a known entity to me. And yeah. I love trucks, or I love cars, and I want one. But then you get it, and you start using it, uh -huh. and you start to discover all these things mm. about it. Yeah. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. This is like so much more than a truck. This thing just totally gets me. Mm. You know, like the phone pocket is where I want it. I don't need to go digging through my bag to get my keys because we've put the key clip in an exterior pocket mm. as opposed to buried in the middle you yeah know? the laptop sleeve is padded enough so that you know that that thing is protected but you're not walking around with like a wetsuit in your bag <laughs> yeah. Like yeah it's good thing, you know but that can be kind of a hard sell because yeah. you're basically asking somebody to trust you that six months from now they're going to be like losing their mind yeah. they're going to become evangelical about this company or yeah. this product yeah if they use it so coming back to the commercial side of it, it needs to be approachable. Yeah. It needs to look good. Yeah. It needs to be something that sits on a shelf and you say, ooh, God, that's really handsome. I yeah. want to touch that. I want to mm. carry that with me. So you're already starting up here. And then once they start using it, you need that line to just like 
spike. Mm. Yeah, to me, that that's sort of the ideal more in Giles experience is that mm. you don't get used to it. It like continues to sort of surprise you and delight mm. you two or three years down the line. And you only get more and more glad that you bought it, mm. which I'm a consumer. You know, I mean, I know how hard <laughs> it is to pull the trigger on something yeah. that's luxury or really nice yeah. or maybe something that's like wow ah, god you know i don't know if that feeling that sort of thrill of having it is going to persist to justify that purchase yeah. and i'm obviously very fortunate in that i get to test a lot of prototypes yeah and i have bags that i've been carrying for as long as i've been here my wallet for instance yeah yeah i mean a small piece of leather with a zipper and a little corner detail and every time i get it out i'm like Damn, this thing looks so good. <laughs> so good. It looks so good. Yeah. And I think about it every time I look at it. Yeah. Man, there are not many products like that. That's a great there point. really are not that many. And that's what we're aiming for. And I would add that it just becomes even more personal because of that. Yeah. So that wallet has aged in and worn in a specific way because of the way that you carry it or the pocket that you carried in or yeah. the, the time that you dove in the ocean in your jeans Absolutely. and had your wallet in your pocket. Absolutely. So I think that's the discovery piece there where as you spend time with it and it begins to age and patina and wear in, that process is because of you. It's not because of somebody else you paid to do it. Yeah. It didn't show up to your door like that. Like you basically earn those stripes. And there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with that mm. the longer i use it the better it looks and the more sure i am that i made the right decision and that you know i mean it's a quality conversation we can talk about you know when i'm going to a factory or if i'm talking to the factory on the phone and we have these relationships with them to the point where we're not going to put something out mm -hmm. if i'm not sure that i'm going to have that feeling five years from yeah. now you know that it's still going to give me joy in order to give me joy five years from now it needs to be able to survive for five years yeah and in order for it to be something that is a justifiable purchase i need to know that it is going to last a long time mm. that that's not just sort of marketing rhetoric yeah know, but that really is how we want that to be because the leather's going to hold up and so the seams need to hold up and the thread needs to hold up and the zippers need to yeah. hold up and the hardware needs to hold up and the lining needs to hold up and these are things that we are just constantly messing around with trying to hone 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 and home in on what's the best well i think too like our customer surveys have proven that the reason that the majority of people buy any of our products specifically is what they noted as quality yeah and i think you and i believe that starts with the leather yeah and then the work that we're doing in each of our what six factories right now or more the work matches the quality of the leather and so you talk about you know my day-to-day -day as a designer really the lion's share of the work is making sure that all the other components are up to snuff with the mm. leather. And truly, whether that is the look of the bag, yeah. the look needs to justify this 150-year-old tannery's work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, needs to, it needs to stand up to that. It needs to support that. And really, so much of my day-to-day, -day, you know, I don't sit around necessarily drawing new ideas mm. as often as I fly to the factory to check on <laughs> prototypes. Yeah. Or I was just emailing with our hardware manufacturer. I'm literally redesigning one small zipper pull for the insides of all the bags. Wow. That needs to be better. Mm. Just needs to be better. 
Yeah. Have we had any problems with it? No. But could it be better? Absolutely. <laughs> like, I know it could be better. Yeah. And so he's sending me a 3D print of a zipper pull that I should be getting tomorrow. That's cool. You know? And so yeah. it's stuff like that. We're redesigning the lining right now. And that's been this sort of marathon project, much to Sackett's chagrin. Sorry, Sackett. But it needs to be up to snuff. So we're going back to Italy and we're going to the same weavers who make for all the big household name luxury wow. companies who we've worked with in the past and then sort of had stopped working with for a little while. But there's no compromising. Yeah. You know, and it's not that we left them in an attempt to change the quality of the bag, but again, just sort of as a part of this work of constantly trying yeah. to hunt for how do we make this better? How do we make this better? How do we make this better? Without, again, just making 10 different briefcases. Mm -hmm. How do we make this one briefcase better? How do we yeah. make the commuter briefcase That's good. better every single year? Instead of running away from it, yeah. run to it. Yeah, we already know that these shapes work. We've spent a lot of time perfecting them and responding to customers about what they want. So then it's just a details game. Man, that's good. It's cool. It's it's It can be very frustrating because it's so microscopic. Well, let me ask you a kind of a vulnerable question. Like, how do you stack our stuff up against all of the finest luxury brands out there? Because you know, if you look at our price point, if we're being honest, mm -hmm. like we sit in a funny category. We do. We're more expensive than kind of your entry level, right. you know, $150 weekend bag. We're gonna be more expensive than maybe uh, a brand that is kind of an outdoorsy type Type of product right, right right but we're gonna be more I would say accessible yeah. than these super high fashion houses a lot of which by the way the same places that we tan our leather in or they wish they tanned their leather <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean like really for yeah. sure I mean absolutely yeah. there's some overlap there but and so like when you and I walk into any luggage store yeah. or bag store we won't drop names but the first thing we're gonna gauge them on is the quality of the leather right and then we move to quality of construction right so, like, how do you feel like we stack up versus the other guys? It's not even a comparison. Mm. And the main reason is that I have not seen one luxury company. And I do a lot of shopping around, <laughs> going in and out of stores. I mean, we're in New York. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go over to this place and I'll meet you guys later. And I just go and like touch everything and like try stuff on that I can't afford and then disappoint everybody when I leave. I was just in New York at the end of March and spent an hour and a half in Barney's mm. going up and down through the men's department, women's department, and just touching everything. Wow. Their leather is so bad. Wow. I can put my name on that, you know? Yeah. Because they all want their leather to look the same mm. across 10,000 bags. Mm. Let's say 1,000 bags at a time. And they want every single one to look the same. So how do you do that? You use finished leather, yeah. corrected grain leather. Yeah. And so it never ceases to amaze me when I roll into these beautiful, beautiful shops, into these incredible displays that these brands have spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on. Yeah. And you're like, what is this? Yeah. It's plastic, man. That's such a good point. And I get why they do it. I don't necessarily fault them for it. I mean, yeah. it gives us more room. We're not under any threat of being, you know, outclassed by any of these people. Yeah. And I get why they do it. Again, everybody wants to have the same bag and yeah. fine if that's what you're going for. Yeah. But our decision to not go for that mm -hmm. puts us in a class by ourselves. And I don't yeah. say that just because it's this company. I say it because you look at our bag next to, like you literally put it next to anybody else's yeah. and it's like, they don't look anything alike. No. Anything alike. And I think that the interesting thing is for us, like even if you put two of our own bags side by side, yeah. The shape is going to be the same, mm -hmm. but each bag will look different. Even if it's subtle, yeah. like if you took two Brompton Brown weekend bags side by side, right. 
Okay, the right. bag looks similar, right. but each one will have its own life. And I think back to your butchering conversation, we celebrate the fact that that's the case. Yeah. We celebrate that each bag will look different. Sure. Each bag has its own natural markings sure. because that respect is paid to the living organism yeah. that we have the benefit of utilizing and using every day. Absolutely. And man, how cool is that? Absolutely. Like it's your own. So like, if I'm frank with you, man, like I don't want to carry around something that's got a logo on the side of it that looks like the other dude just because I'm trying to fit in. If you were at a restaurant and three people around the table all ordered the prime rib and the plate came and all three of your steaks looked exactly the same yeah like same shape same grill marks yeah same little sort of marbling on the side what, what kind of prime rib like what is they this? call that spam yeah you would be concerned yeah so like what we're saying right now is that there are luggage products out there yeah. there are travel and briefcase products out there that are spam of leather it's the spam of leather. You put you get, that's right. You can quote us. <laughs> if we're going to break that down for a person, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that they've taken a leather that was probably a lower grade leather. They've run it through the tannery. They've tanned it, right. and then they have rolled a print onto it to correct that grain. So they wanted it to look the same, and they get a better yield out of that hide. We get right. it. But what happens is, is that you remove all of the uniqueness to that hide. Absolutely. And basically, you're also painting on the pigment to that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it feels different. It differently you know you get leather like that and you use a bag like that for 10 or 15 years if that grain starts to break mm. and it's like a fragile little facade on the top of an otherwise pretty inexpensive material you see appealing the cracks are a different color from mm. the resin. you start seeing white between the sort of cracks these things if you're dealing with natural leather you have to use a grade hides yeah. you just said this where you're taking a lower quality hide yeah. so you're already at a quality disadvantage that they're just literally painting over yeah and disguising as something nicer than and then really selling it is. to you at a higher price and you know our bags every eight months some business of fashion or somebody will write an article saying these major fashion houses make all their money in fragrance and accessories. accessories yeah and every single time i look at that i'm like how i mean <laughs> You know, we're a business. We are selling these bags in order to be able to pay your salary, my salary, pay for the bill. Yeah, there is a necessary margin that's built into anything that's being sold. But we go back and forth internally on our side about how we price anything, where we want it to be as accessible as possible. Our margins are not very high. Yeah. Apologies to Elizabeth. You can cut that out if you want. <laughs> but we're not gouging anybody on yeah. these things. It's just when you deal with the best of everything. Yeah it suddenly adds up. Yeah. And so then the question on our end is, what do we need in order to keep our business going and keep mm -hmm. our brand alive? Let's add that into the mix. But then it doesn't need to be egregious. It doesn't need to be some overwhelming margin. And I think once you get it, you get it. And I think that's my favorite part is that when you do see somebody carrying one of our bags or you get one of those customer emails back and you go, man, it's almost like being in this quiet club where yeah. it's like they got it, they get it. They're not necessarily just doing it to be part of the crowd that has the same logo that everybody else has on the side of their bag. Yeah, you know, and we're doing this in relatively rural Virginia. Virginia. So much of what we are doing is not trying to create an it bag or create an it sofa yeah. or create an it keychain. It's pretty rare that I'll see our product out in the world. Yeah, so we wind up operating 
on our own little Limpsburg, Virginia ethical code. Of, yeah. We want to make this good. We want to make this the best that it can be. Yeah. And our relationships with the customers, like you're saying, when you yeah. hear back from these people, it's kind of like a little oasis in the desert here. We're just sort of toiling yeah. away, man. We're not up against all these other brands. I don't point to anybody and say that's our competition. We're just doing what we think is the best. And hopefully you enjoy that. And hopefully you enjoy it. And you go on a trip with us. Exactly right. Man. man, that's good. And we're here for it. All right, so in the world that we live in, one of the big questions we get a lot is, tell us about your factories. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's a great question to ask. Like you said, here in Lynchburg, we live by code. Sure. And I believe that we carry that code into the families and the communities where we produce our product. Yeah. So I've spent time with you in the factory. I know you're in yeah. the factory multiple times every year. Right. Almost translating your <laughs> yeah. your drawings sure. into like physical space. Let's talk about those real quick. So we've got the Dominican Republic, which does our big bags. Right. Right. Why don't you talk a little bit about that factory? Sure. Dominican Republic is the factory that we have been with for the longest. They're our longest standing relationship. They are true partners in this with us. I mean, they have helped us get where we are by having the quality that we need in yeah. order to survive. And they're a third generation they luggage are, company, correct? They are third generation. Grandfather, father, and now son yeah. have all been in this business. So they have been around for decades. But they've passed on that institutional knowledge from that's really father to son on that's how really to it. make a great leather bag. That's really it. And that's an art, right? It is an art. And especially dealing with the leather that we're dealing with, we can't just go to any factory that does leather work and say, hey, here, use this material. We've done it before and it has led to disaster because it's almost like working with a cobweb, you know, yeah. or, or some really fine silk or something where you have to, because of the natural characteristics and because of the way that it marks mm. and changes color as you pull it. Yeah. And, you know, these things that we want to make sure that when the customer gets the bag, it's still in pristine shape. Mm -hmm. you know, we want them to put the markings on it. We want them to break it in. Yeah. But this leather can't hide any markings or sort of distress or anything. So the people who are the operators need to be aware of that and need to be capable of using the machinery and being careful with how they cut and how they stack pieces. I mean, it is yeah. like from start to finish. And you have to be patient with it. So we're making now 75 to 100 bags at a time. So Which is still a style. tiny number. Like I said before, compared to these big luxury houses yeah. that are cranking out thousands at a go, Yeah, this is tiny. Yeah. This is true handcrafted. Mm. This is, in my mind, the perfect blend between waiting six weeks for somebody to hand stitch an entire bag that looks like this, that has beautiful details and turned edges and is as finished the bag as we're doing, mm -hmm. and that mass production side yeah. where the guys are just jamming stuff out. We are in that sweet spot between Man, that's those good. two. So the Dominican, their know-how and their skill level is really sort of second to none. And then we're down there a lot, like so much of what I send to them are blueprints, yes, but really more sort of outlines. Yeah. And then I go down and, again, relying on what they already know and yeah. what they know how to do yeah. and what they know how to do better than I know how to do. Yeah. But we can then tweak 
designs yeah. and tweak bags to either take advantage of an idea that they have for mm-hmm. you know, a solution of how we're going to put a bag together that's going to result in something that looks really beautiful and works really well. Yeah. I'm all for that. Well, I think we're such a unique model in this world because we're not going to a mill or to somebody else to buy leather like you would a fabric in this sense and then it's shipped to the factory. We're literally shipping our own leather to the factory. So you have an already intimate relationship with the material that's being used. When it gets there, it's coming in as Moran Giles and it's leaving as Moran Giles. So I always want to draw that connection for people. So the leather that's coming in is the same leather that's going out. Absolutely. And so that process from a supply chain perspective happens in Amherst, Virginia, which is about 10 minutes here from office. A lovely lady named Cheryl and her daughter do a great job for us in making our small goods. They do. Things like the money clips, money clip wallets, belts, keychains. Exactly. And it's the same thing. You walk into their workspace and they have 50 key fobs, literally just sort of the smallest thing that we make, each individually perched on a little (laughs) stand because they've hand edge coated them and the edge coat needs to dry. There's a sea of these key fobs lying around, you know, and it's a $35 item, something like that, you know. Yeah. Small, small, small scale. Yeah. But that same care, yeah. same attention to detail, and that same sort of seeing things all the way through. We yeah. Don't, they don't have to finish that. Edge. Yeah. They don't have to exactly. do these things. They could just click it out, put a key ring in it, split ring, and send it to us. But we ask them to do it, and they do it. You know? It well, is. there's no key fob machine. And I think that's what yeah. people need to understand about our product right. is like there's right. no bag machine, there's right. no key fob machine. Every element to our products are literally done by hand. Part of my amateur status as a bag designer has been to overcomplicate damn near everything. <laughs> really and truly. But I think that that serves us really well. I yeah. think had I come in with more institutional knowledge yeah. about this is how you design a bag the most efficiently, it would be significantly less interesting. It makes the prototyping process much harder. We have to go back and forth three or four times in order to get everything just right. Yeah. But it is as far away from a bag machine as you can get. (laughs) You know, I mean, it really is. Like on the rolling suitcase where the leather straps, and this is all sort of just decor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what's going to make this thing look beautiful and different on a carousel when you get to the airport. Is this sort of beautiful sort of horizontal strap that Mm. bisects this vertical face of this bag. Each of those tabs has to be hand riveted at the very end of the process. So they stitch these straps on. But then because I wanted the strap itself to turn the actual corner of the bag, you have to wait till the very end of the bag is all put together. Uh, and then these little tiny tabs folded over, hand riveted in place. Wow. And you wind up with a bag that just has a whole different dimensionality to it than it would if that was just stitched in place and pieced together. Yeah. And it could be, but it's not what we wanted or we believe that would be the best. Right. So it's not going to look as good. Or hold up as well. That's also very true. Yeah. So we've got four or five other factories that we use yeah. throughout the country yeah. and based on their strength or what they specialize in we put the work of the leather in the right spots for them right. and then from a supply chain perspective we then have about 200 retail locations throughout the country is that correct or so right now that's probably about right mostly men's specialty stores mostly traditionally specialty. Yeah. a couple big boxes we're in what nordstrom's, nordstrom's right now nordstrom's the big one yeah. and then there's also online so the majority online. of our sales at a retail level are happening 
happening online right now. So we're having a lot of interaction with customers. Mm-hmm. You know, our customer care department is every day talking to people. Mm-hmm. You and I are both getting emails. You guys are also doing custom work right now. So there's a lot of back and forth happening that's still very hands-on. So it's not like we're some big behemoth or, again, like bag machine that's just Absolutely. pumping this stuff out. So I think my question in all of that is we probably aren't doing things the most efficiently, but True. are we doing things the way that you not only love, yeah. but that you also yes. say, hey, I'm okay with the fact that this takes longer? I think it's great. I will overlap with other people who are in my position at other companies, whether yeah. that's at trade shows yeah. or at factories yeah. or just sort of out in the world. And they're so siloed mm. in just drawing just doing production management. They have these great skill sets and they're terrific, terrific folks and terrific designers. But this model that we have because Mm -hmm. of the size of the company, because of the expectations on everybody, coming back to the very beginning of the conversation about the people around you, there is an expectation that they will help you learn what you need to learn, know what you need to know and succeed because we're all in the same boat. Yeah, we all got our master's degrees from FIU, the second says, figure it out university. (laughs) To work on that act. I know. (laughs) Exactly right. There is an expectation, as was the case in my position when I started, of, all right, we're just going to throw you in the deep end. And that's very scary. Yeah. Until you learn how to swim, right? And until you also recognize that the people around you are going to help you do that. Make sure you don't drown. Yeah, you're really going to make sure you don't drown. And in that, as opposed to, say, well, why don't they just teach you how to swim first and then throw you in the deep end? But in the scope of what Hmm. I've learned, and then also how important it is to then interact with what the people in customer care are doing, what the people in marketing are doing, what the people in production are doing. What are the phone calls like coming in? Okay, we've got a catalog dropping on Tuesday. What are the questions that you guys have about the new product? Yeah. And then after the catalog drops, what are the questions that you're getting from customers about yeah. what it is that we do? And the fact that we're all in the same ring mm-hmm. as opposed to being in sort of little individual rings. Yeah. Or owned by a private equity firm. Right, with expectations that we need to do this more efficiently or we need yeah. to streamline the business. Or, I hate to say this, and this is something that I can get away with because I'm the designer and not the business person, be super concerned about like making X amount of dollars every single yeah. year doing what we're doing, we can continue to yeah. let the product, in my case, you know, at least, what is the best way to present this product, mm. design this product, make this product, and let that be the first question as opposed to we need to make this for $15. I think you're so right because when your process starts with let's use the best leather in the world, like we make the finest leather in the world, that's the leather we're going to use. Right. It seems like such a waste of your time to to not spend that much effort and energy making sure everything else is just as good. Absolutely. And so it's funny that everything really flows out of that desire to create the finest leather in the world. And once you start using that, you go, hey, we'll spend a little bit more time in the factory. We'll spend a little bit more money on the extra rivet. We'll package it up a little bit better because at the end of the day, we have started at such a space that says it has to be the best that anything less than that throughout the process makes you feel like we're doing a disservice not only to ourselves, but to the initial work that we were doing in the beginning anyway. Absolutely. And the other piece coming back to the conversation and crosstalk that happens here Mm. and that starts here but then happens when we move out into the world. And you know this when you go to a trade show and even you know go and visit an editor in his office in New York or whatever. The emphasis that is placed on having real conversations with people leads to so 
so much more interesting products yeah. where my conversation with somebody in Charlottesville leads to bringing on this craftsperson in Afton. Yeah. And he knows a metal worker in Charlottesville. And that metal worker can cast pewter and can cast custom hardware. And mm. suddenly, because of that emphasis on ask questions, mm -hmm. engage the people around you, strike yeah. up conversations, yeah. don't be in your own little world, yeah. suddenly my world from a design perspective mm. gets that much broader yeah. because now, okay, well, these guys do this beautiful job wrapping wood of any shape with leather. What can yeah. we do with that? Yeah. This guy can cast sterling silver, cast brass. What yeah. can we do with that? Yeah. Uh, the people who do our merino wool in New Zealand, a conversation with them in Italy at a trade show led to me being connected to their mill in Japan. And that mill in Japan produced our blankets. And that would have never have happened. So cool. Had, you know, had there not been this, get out there and do it. Get out there and talk to people who are yeah. around you who are also doing really interesting things. Because yeah. I'm not under any illusion that I myself have the answer yeah. you know, to like, what's going to be the best design? Mm. What's going to be the best product for us to sell? So much of that is A, a team effort with yeah. sort of our whole crew yeah. contributing answers. But then also, all right, well, who do we know? Anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. And I think for a company from middle of nowhere, Lynchburg, Virginia, right. that's a very unique mindset. Absolutely. We're not a closed-minded group. We're a growth mindset type of group that mm -hmm. says, there's a group in Japan that makes great woven blankets. Yeah. We're going to work with them to make our woven blanket. Yeah. There's a tannery in the middle of nowhere in Italy. We're going to work with them to develop a new type of leather. Absolutely. There's a hardware group somewhere in, <laughs> you know, in the yeah. world that Absolutely. we haven't found yet that we're going to use. And I think Absolutely. that mindset allows this little company yeah in Lynchburg, Virginia, to create this product that is so much bigger and beyond who we are as individuals in a small community in the South. Absolutely. And I think that this is probably why growing up here, I didn't know of Warren Giles. Mm. Because the vision for the company is international. It's so broad. Yes, it deserves to be said that Warren Giles does a lot within the Lynchburg community. Right. And it is very present. But in terms of what we actually do, mm -hmm. we have taken what are typically conversations that happen at a local level and made them international. Yeah. It's the same level of friendliness, respect, kindness, our entire yeah. mission that happens on an email to Japan as it does to walking down to the Virginian to see the setup at the hotel in the middle of yeah. downtown Lynchburg. It's the same ethos yeah. and it's pervasive and it's fantastic. I mean, it makes my day-to-day -day extremely interesting. T, this has been so good. I mean, I wanted to sit down with you today to talk about design, but man, we talked about so much more. And I hope that anybody that is coming on board at Morn Giles gets to hear this before they even start day one. Yeah. And I hope anybody out there that finds our stuff in a retail location or online or in a magazine says, huh, that's why this is interesting and meaningful. So what do you want somebody out there to know about us? The one challenge about having to sell a bag like the bags that we're doing mm -hmm. is that people really typically see the bag on the shelf and they'll see the leather and they'll see the style mm -hmm. and they either like it or they don't. But what's actually compelling about the company yeah. is all this other stuff that happens behind <laughs> the scenes. That bag is literally the smallest encapsulation of whether it's the culture, whether it's mm. uh, the quality, whether it's the relationships that we have, like we've been talking about with factories and with yeah. stores and with buyers and with all these different people and the personal interactions that have gone into yeah. that bag. That bag is almost like 
just this tiny little afterthought. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, hey, we made a bag. It, <laughs> it, oh, hey, oh, and by the this. way, this is a consequence of all this exactly. other stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. As opposed to feeling like we're setting out saying, let's start a bag company, let's just make bags and let's sell as many as we can. It's the manifestation of all these relationships. Man, that's so good. You know, I think this model may never get us on NPR or the Forbes list, but it is going to make a difference in the community here. It's going to make a difference in the lives of the people that we do business with. Again, I think this is just a great example of having the long game in mind. Our products are just such a good representation of that. I think so. Man, thanks for taking the time with me Thank today. Thank you. This has been really fun. Guys, it's been such a joy to spend the afternoon with design director Thomas Brennan. If you look at our website, you're going to see all of his work there. And again, it's just a consequence of all the good stuff that's happening internally here at Moore Giles. Thanks, T. Thanks.